Just a few minutes ago, you sang, Jesus, Lord of everything. Jesus, Lord of everything. What does that mean? It means everything. Everything is everything. Um, it's really easy for us to say, well, <laughs> he, he's God over the world. He's God over nations. He's God over rulers. He's God over, as we will we'll find in Colossians, he's over the things that are visible, the things that are invisible, thrones or dominions. It, it doesn't matter. God is, he's Lord over everything. And that is true. But then as we begin to, to bring that truth a little closer to home, and then we ask ourselves, is Jesus Lord over me? Is Jesus over my life personally? Is it clear from the people who look at me, those who are closest to me, those who, who see me from day to day, is it clear to them that Jesus is Lord over my life? What would that look like? Well, it looks like somebody who's, who's oriented towards wanting to know Jesus. There, there's this desire for relationship with him. I mean, those of you who are married, you, may, you might think back to those, the, those early times uh, of, of beginning that relationship with your spouse, and you think about how, man, you, you just always wanted to be together, and that's what, that's what happens when you're in love with someone. And so if, if you're in love with Jesus and Jesus is Lord over your life, there's gonna be this active pursuing and loving and wanting to know Jesus personally. You just can't get enough of Jesus. But you know, if Jesus is Lord over everything, that also means that Jesus is Lord over your work. He's Lord over the things that you do in business. Whether you're a business owner or you work for a businessman, that your life shows a commitment to love for Jesus. Jesus is Lord over you. There's integrity in your work. There's consistency in your work. And people know Ah, that person loves Jesus. Jesus is Lord over that person's life. Jesus is Lord over your family. Whether you're married or single, that those who look at you and the, the way that you interact with the, the people in your family, brothers and sisters, moms or dads, children or spouses, how you relate to them demonstrates that God is, is Lord over your life and how you how you desire to lead the ones that you love into deeper relationship with him. If Jesus is Lord over your family, there's nothing more that you want than for your family to love Jesus the same way you love Jesus. You're gonna invest your time, your energy, your priorities, your commitments. You're gonna filter away the things that interfere and distract your family from commitment and worship and love of God, and you're gonna show that Lord is master over your family in that every opportunity you get, you're gonna lead them into deeper communion with him. And this morning we come to a very touchy area. We come to an area that really a lot of us, it might press in a bit. It may, it may address an issue that you feel a little sensitive about. Oh, we're told don't talk about politics, religion, and money. And we're gonna talk about money today. We're gonna talk about how money is a reflection of your treasure. 
what you truly love, what you truly value. And, and the posture of your heart in how you respond to money is going to demonstrate whether or not you are really in the kingdom of God. That's how serious this is. Now, one of the things about going through a book of the Bible and teaching expositionally, which is what we're committed to do as a church, is we touch on the things that, that are really encouraging, and then we touch on the things that are really challenging. And that happens to be one of our passages today in Luke chapter 12. I would encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. If you're um, a guest with us and you need a pew Bible, it's on page 871. Perhaps the greatest obstacle that gets in the way of us having a relationship with God is money. Jesus says as much to his disciples when he's interacting with a rich young ruler. He says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to experience the kingdom of God. And, and why? It's because they don't have to trust in anybody but themselves. They just have to work harder. And they don't have to trust God for anything. And so it gets in the way so often of learning to depend on who God is in, in writing Across the banner of their life, Jesus is Lord over everything, including my finances. Well, consider, regardless of where your economic standing is in America, as an American, you're in the upper 80% of the world's richest people. Do you realize that? So, the poorest happen to live in India. India has the world's highest number of poor children. Let me let you take a peek at this graphic. Amounting to a total of 97 million children that live in poverty. And the kind of poverty, by the way, where, where these kids have to go to the garbage dump to find food, they have to go to the garbage dump to scavenge for plastic and for aluminum so they can re recycle, and they get pennies on the dollar just so they can get a little bit of bread for that day to, to sustain them. 21% of India's children population live in poverty. The number of poor people in India actually dropped by as much as 415 million people over the last 15 years. And by the way, just so you can kind of compare that we have 330 million that live in America. So 415 million, it dropped by that number. And so what we're left with in India is about 230 million people in India that live in poverty. Imagine if someone came to you and said, I would like you to leave everything that you own behind. I would like you to pick up yourself and everyone that you love, I'd love, like you to move to India so you can minister to those poor kids that are living there. While that, um, that directive or that encouragement would seem hard, the, the, the promise that, that is accompanied with the, with the command is that, that those who would live there, there, there would be thousands that would come to faith in Jesus Christ through your testimony, through the gospel witness. What if that was coupled with the command? And, and what if there was a donor, a, a donor who had a, um, 
almost an endless supply of income, a, a multi-millionaire or a multi-billionaire who said, I will fund your missions trip and I will make sure that every need that you have is addressed. Every need that you have for food, every need that you have for drink, and every need that you have for clothing, that will be met. Bank on it. This donor says, I will personally guarantee that all your needs are met. Would you consider it? Now, what if that mega donor says, you know what, um, on second thought, you don't have to actually move to India after all. You can, you can stay here. But, 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 but what I'd like you to consider is that, that you would be super generous with your money so that every amount of money that you give will go into a bank account that I will fund and the guarantee is that when for every dollar that you give in terms of generosity to individuals will be stockpiled there, will accumulate interest and so by the time you retire you'll have uh, a thousand times what you invested. How about that? Would you be open to that? Now, those of you who think that this is a massive setup, you're correct. Because the passage that we look at today, there is a mega donor that is God himself. And that mega donor has promised that he will provide for all you need. Your food, your clothing, your drink. It will be provided. And you can bank on the storehouses of heaven. God will supply. He's given you Jesus Christ. He can address the small stuff of eating and drinking and wearing. And then that same mega donor, God himself, has said that when you invest in the economy of the kingdom, when you lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt and and, and uh, thieves don't break through and steal, then, then they're gonna be a stockpile, this inheritance in heaven that is waiting for you that I will personally fund. That's the promise that we've been granted as those who are believers in God, part of the kingdom of heaven. That when you retire, when you cross the line, the threshold, and you step into eternity, there's an inheritance waiting for you there. By the way, the greatest inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. It's not the stuff that waits us for us there, but the, the inheritance of Christ. As we sang about, Christ is mine forevermore. He is the treasure. And how we orient our heart, how we show a commitment in giving, We'll, we'll demonstrate which path we're on in terms of the trajectory that we're following. A heart that is set on the things of this world or a heart that is set on the things of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. What you're giving says is much about where your future will lie. And it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. You have the privilege of this grace stewardship. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church of Corinth, they, they by the way, were, had, had more money to do uh, than they knew what to do with. And Paul is commending the church of Corinth to be generous, like we're going to talk about this morning, to be generous in giving. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 1 and 2, 
Chapter eight, verses one and two says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Interesting that he attaches grace and giving together. Financial contribution to Paul's ministry was an extension, or I should say an expression of of, uh, God's grace through them to others. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This church of Macedonia, which was, by the way, the church of Philippi, the word for extreme poverty is the word that describes literally hand to mouth. Daily existence. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what the church of Philippi was experiencing. And yet, their abundant overflow, sacrificial love for the apostle Paul in pouring out this grace gift was a demonstration of where their heart really, really was. He says, now talking to the church of Corinth, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Church of Corinth, would you demonstrate a same commitment to grace as, we, as you see in the church of Philippi, the church of Macedonia. And here's why. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The grace of Jesus Christ is what compels us to lavish generosity. The grace of Jesus Christ in coming front and center to our attention is what will drive our actions, our thinking, our love and our affections, the things that we value. And and as we demonstrate the grace of God working in our life, we'll be conduits of that grace to others because we know, as Paul will say in chapter nine, that, that he who supplies seed to the sower will supply for your needs as well. And so you can continue to distribute this grace of God because there is an infinite supply of God's grace that is, that is available to you. Just continue to distribute this grace as those who've experienced grace. Steward the grace of God as those who understand which kingdom, to which kingdom they belong. Maximize your giving potential, your kingdom giving potential. Use it to the, to the max. Recognize it's never wasted. That is essentially the summary of our message today. As we come to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and 15, this is, this is where it's all coming to an head. It's, it's coming right out in open view. Jesus will, will address a man who is given to covetousness, a man who is given to greediness, a man who is given to, to selfishness. He wants to stockpile, and Jesus is going to address him publicly in, the, in front of everyone about where his heart, the questions of his heart are leading him. He doesn't want that for this man. So look with me in Luke chapter 12. Let me read verses 13 and 15 as we begin our study. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard 
against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And we're going to see throughout our passage today, this is a matter of life and death. Your giving is a matter of life and death. Whether it's also, it's, it's a physical life and death, but also spiritual life and death. And I just want to say right at the outset so that you're not um, trying to get through this hurdle, it, it's not wrong or unbiblical for us to have money. There is an, an abundance of things that's okay. It's just how we use the abundance that God has given to us. How do we steward that abundance? How do we take advantage of the opportunities that when God gives us good things that we distribute, then that grace to others. The more he gives, the more grace we can, we can pour out of our life. The more of God we can let other people see. That's what is at stake. And the posture of your heart tells you and tells others what you value and what you treasure. Christ begins with a warning. Somebody in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me. Now, if you remember, Jesus has begun chapter 12. He's kind of turned to his disciples, and anyone who's willing to listen, this massive crowd of thousands of people who are stumbling over themselves, and Jesus will turn his attention to his disciples, his true disciples, and he wants them to understand what the Pharisees are all about. They're all about hypocrisy. They're all about the show. They're all about pretending. They're all about the exterior, but the inside of their heart is set against God. And in this deep, difficult conversation that Jesus is having with his, his disciples, out of the blue, this man speaks up and he wants one-on-one -on -one attention. He wants Jesus to settle an issue. And he not only asks Jesus, Jesus, will you please help me? He actually makes a demand of Jesus and commands Jesus to do something. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This, ver this word to tell is, a, is an imperative. It's a command. He, he, he leaves nothing to the imagination. He wants Jesus to be his personal arbiter to settle this issue with his brother who, by the way, was likely standing right next to him in the crowd. He wasn't asking Jesus to go to his house and help settle this account. He, he, he was talking about his brother that was standing right next to him. Deal with this issue, teacher. Now, you got to understand that teachers in that day did have a responsibility of routinely arbitrating in civil and legal family disputes. And so it wasn't out of the stretch of the imagination for Jesus to come and step in. And it was right, of course, for this older brother to share his inheritance with his younger brother. And the whole context of this about inheritance, about, about a father who had died, now distributing this inheritance to his sons who were living, this issue of life comes right to the forefront. Jesus turns his attention to this young man. And as Jesus will often do, 
when asked a question to divert, to, to divert attention and, and talk to somebody else, Jesus will now focus on this young man and he'll bring the lesson home to this young man. And he'll bring this lesson home by answering a command with two commands himself. Jesus says, take care. Jesus says, guard yourself. Pay attention. Understand. You need to see and observe the seriousness of what is happening. Be on your guard, he says, against covetousness, this love for money, this greediness that is in you. You see, money lies to us. Money tells us that it is our life, that we cannot live the good life without it. We cannot have a meaningful life, a comfortable life, or a happy life without money. That's, what li- that's the lie that money wants to tell us. You can't be satisfied, you can't be happy without me. And Jesus will address this issue of money and this lie by helping this young man understand the significance of the heart from which this kind of thinking is coming. One's life does not consist in the abundance of things, young man. Would you understand that your heart is indicating it's a window to your life, it's a window to your heart, it's helping me to see what is truly important to you, what you are valuing, and the road that you're on right now is demonstrating that you're committed to something that is temporal, it is physical, it is in the kingdom of this world, and not in the kingdom of God, not eternal. You're demonstrating through your life and your covetousness, your greediness, that you want nothing really to do about true happiness and true contentment that only comes from God. So Jesus will tell a story. That's what's next, Christ's story. It comes to us in verses 16 and 21, and he says this. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for... I have nowhere to share my crops or store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax and eat and drink. Be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So in, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's not a bad thing to be a productive farmer. It's not a bad thing to have abundance. It's not wrong for you to be a successful business owner. It's not wrong for you to make lots of money. The, the question in this parable is not an issue of wealth. It's an issue of how your, what your posture is in relationship to your wealth and what you trust and how you share and dispense and steward the wealth that God has given to you. It's not wrong to be successful. It's not wrong to have a flourishing business. That's not the point that Jesus is after. The point that Jesus is after is what is his life oriented around? And it's unfortunate, but the translation in verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you will have ample goods. 
This word for soul is also the word for life. This is the continuing theme throughout this entire section. Where are you orienting your life? What are you living for? What are you living for? In chapter 12, verse 22, the same word is used where it says, don't be anxious about your life. That's the same word. It's the word suke. And then in verse 23, life is more than food, the body more than clothing. That's our same word. It's the word suke. What are you living for? What are you orienting your life to have? What is the driving force leading you to? Is it leading you to wanting more stuff, stockpiling and contentment and happiness in the things of this life? Or is it in dispensing and sharing and stewarding what God has given to you? The farmer showed where his true heart was, what he truly valued. This use of treasure says one thing about his life. His soul, his life will be demanded of him, and he was a fool because he pursued the things that were earthly, not the things that were spiritual, and what he spent his life doing set itself against the things of God, and so he experienced the judgment and condemnation of God in a moment. What do you value? What do you truly value? Of course, it wouldn't be wrong for us to want food and drink and merriment if there wasn't a resurrection. But as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he's comparing those who, who love and, un, and understand the resurrection. He says, of those who believe in the resurrection, don't be like them, don't be like the, the world who, who are running after eating and drinking, for tomorrow we die. But those who understand the eternality of the soul and the eternality of life will orient our heart in a direction of loving God and treasuring him, stewarding the things we have in a way that demonstrates what we truly love, what we're truly living for. And he says, Jesus says in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. To be rich towards God, it's the only place in the New Testament where this phrase is used. What does it mean? It means that this individual is living in a way that's opposite of treating himself or herself as if they were made for things. Treating himself or herself as if this world is all that mattered. Treating himself or herself as if the pleasures of this world were the only things worth living for without understanding the eternality of the soul and of the life. To be rich towards God is to have a heart that's moving in the direction of God and sharing the grace gifts that God has given to us with others. And just as a mini detour, we're gonna give you an opportunity during the missions conference, not only to enjoy the benefits of the ministry to you through those who are speaking and those who are serving through worship and various, various means, but, but we're going to encourage you to also contribute. In, in, in this missions conference, we want you to learn about what it means to be a missionary, but we also want to give you the opportunity to be a missionary, to be a servant during the conference. So 
Sometime during, during this week, there's gonna be a, a list of ways that you can volunteer to serve those who come, and I'm just gonna encourage you to, to pick one, one way you can serve in this missions conference to be a blessing to others as you're experiencing the blessing of the word of God and from the rest of the body who are serving you. Orient your heart towards treasuring God, expending self, and not just stockpiling wealth and riches and ministry of others to you, but, but be one who's a conduit of grace to others. <laughs> Jesus now turns his attention. How can we live this way? How, how can we live as those who are expending ourselves for God? Well, Jesus now helps his listeners to understand this is only possible one way. It's only possible as we put our faith in God. And so giving is a matter of faith in God. Not only does it help to show where our faith lies, but it helps to amplify faith in us so we can overcome the, the, the glistening uh, allurements of this world and, and be drawn closer into relationship with God. So what I, what I mean is, as we are going through the motions, as it were, of learning how to trust God with our resources, and then we're seeing that God is faithful to answer our needs and to provide for our needs. It helps to, to amplify faith in us and gives us an affection, a, a larger, greater, deeper affection for Jesus in the process. Jesus will begin with a life-altering perspective. That's what we see in verses 22 to 28. This life-altering perspective. How can I be a person of faith? Let me read this. It says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are they, are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. On three occasions, Jesus uses the word, don't be anxious. And then he concludes with, don't be worried. We live in an anxious, driven society. And it is driving us crazy. And it is actually ruining our health. <laughs> Surprisingly. Christ's exhortation to this audience was shocking. You can trust God with the most basic things of life. Not just the secondary things of life, but the primary, essential, foundational things of life. You can trust God to provide for those. And Jesus will lace into this section of Scripture, he'll lace in four arguments that helps to, to draw out faith in us and, and remind us of the need for faith. First is a lesson of the lesser to the greater. The lesser to the greater argument. He gives two examples of 
two, one, uh, a group of birds or ravens, and then the second example is the, is the flowers or the grass, both of which are insignificant. Both, by the way, ravens in particular, were detested in the first century, to a first century Jewish mind. And in the Old Testament perspective, they were considered dirty and unclean, and yet God still cares for the birds. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow, God cares for them, they don't toil or spin, God makes sure that they're taken care of. So if God cares about birds, he cares about you. And if God cares about grass, he cares about grass and flowers so much that even the flowers are arrayed in a way that Solomon could never even begin to compete with. And if the grass is here today and burned in the oven tomorrow and God cares about the grass, then God cares about you. The argument of lesser to greater. You're greater than birds. You're greater than grass. God cares for you. He's gonna take care of your needs. You can trust him. And by the way, if the little birds can trust God to take care of them, then should we not be able to trust God to take care of our needs? This argument of lesser to greater. And then the second is a logical argument found in verse 25. He says, which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life. If you then are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? How many of you, in worrying, can add even a single hour to your life? And the answer is nobody. As a matter of fact, studies have shown that stress and worry is a, a result in a number of physical issues and even reduces the span of life by as much as three years or more. In your worry, you can't do anything when you worry. It doesn't change anything except for make you stressed out. It doesn't make sense, this logical argument. Then Jesus provides an ethical argument in, in, in verse 30. He says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Which kingdom, to which kingdom do you belong? The kingdom of this earth or the kingdom of heaven? If the people who live in this kingdom of this earth put their confidence in money, how do you distinguish yourself from them as those who have been set apart and demonstrate that you belong not in this world? Your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. How do you demonstrate that? Well, you demonstrate that by a commitment and a faith in God who is over all. Jesus over everything. You trust him to provide for your needs. You have a father who knows intimately the things that you need. And finally, fourth, this kingdom argument. Seek his kingdom in verse 31. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Get your heart in the right place. Focus your, your, your attention on the treasure that you find in God. And when you do, you will find that you have a faithful master, a faithful father who will provide for your needs. You can trust him. And this all turns, this, this understanding of this perspective now leads to a Christ, Christ life-altering instructions. What are we to do if we believe? Or what will we do if we believe in God that way? Brace yourself. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock, 
It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is not about earning your salvation in any way. This is not a test to see whether or not you can give enough to make sure that you have an inheritance there in, in heaven. What this is, is a test to see where does your loyalty lie? Where do you find your life? What are you living for? Boils down to that. Whether you have much or you have little, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're a, a, in poverty, living day to day, what does your heart say about what you value, what you treasure? In those who treasure God will steward the grace of God, the gifts of God. They will steward those gifts and they'll be a conduit of blessing and encouragement to people around them. They'll distribute that seed wherever they go. They wanna be generous because God has been generous to them. That's what those who have a heart that is postured towards love for God will do because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What are you treasuring? What are you loving? May God help us to all grow in this area. Oh Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the treasure of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you accomplished for us in the cross. And as we celebrate and remember that work of death and resurrection, as we remember the pierced body and the precious blood, God, may that amplify in our own hearts and lives a desire to dispense that same grace to others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.